Hi, and welcome to the Mavericks Unlimited podcast. I'm your host, Chris Saroy, and this is the place to be. Get unstuck, unleash your superpowers, and create a world that works for all. On this podcast, we speak to Mavericks who inspire us. We aim to get the insight and wisdom from their story to give you the clarity, courage, and conviction that you need to make your mark on the world. In this week's episode, I'm speaking to positive psychology coach and author of Ditch Your Inner Critic at Work, Susan Peppercorn. Like all of us, Susan has battled her own inner demons. However, she studied with many of the world's leading authorities on positive psychology and has come up with many evidence-based practices to really kick that critic into touch. Susan has been featured in the New York Times, Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, and US News, amongst others. And what I really love about her is how down-to-earth and human she is. She really walks her talk as she's put everything she talks about into practice. Susan is a real example of do as I do rather than do as I say. So with that, let's jump right in. So hi Mavericks and welcome to another Mavericks Unlimited podcast. And today I'm absolutely delighted to have Susan Pepcorn with us. Susan is the author of Digital Inner Critic at Work. She's an executive coach and a positive psychologist and I couldn't be more delighted to have her with us. So hi Susan, how are you today? Hi, Krish. I'm great. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being with us. And Su- Susan, I mean, obviously, I've, I've kind of had a good uh, run through your book and that kind of thing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what your story has been to this point? Sure, I'm happy to do that. So um, at last count, I'm on my fourth career. Wow. Uh, I started out as a musician and actually my degrees are in music. But I found out very quickly that um, I was not going to be able to eat uh, <laughs> if I remained a musician um, because I was I, my my uh, instrument is the flute and I was not going I was not at the uh, level um, that was good enough for a symphony orchestra. Right. And at the time, I did not have the money to go back to school, so I actually went into sales. Um, I went into high tech sales and marketing. And um, I did that for the bulk of my career. And um, one of the things that I found during that time was that I really disliked it. Uh, <laughs> I'm I, <not> surprised. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are people that really do, and you know, more power to them. But um, uh, technology, I like using technology. I'm, I'm, you know, not adverse to it, but. Um, the grind of having a sales quota every quarter, um, very challenging customers, highly competitive environment um, was really wearing. Mm. And um, I was afraid to leave because I didn't know what I was going to do as an alternative and the money was good. But my company was acquired and then I I, um, actually asked if if I could be put on an excess list, uh, which I was. And so... Um, I was able to leave and then the journey really started because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And um, eventually I was through my network, all of my, all of my positions after that came through networking Mm. and I was working in the career center of the business school here in Boston. And my job was to use my business development background to reach out to employers, which I did. But as part of that, I started coaching MBA students. Mm. And it was at that time the light bulb went on and I said, oh, wow, I love this. This is what I should be doing. So um, I eventually left there, um, uh, started my own business 
uh, and then, you know, you talked a little bit about my background in positive psychology, which I may come back to later on. But um, the, I think the net of it for the, for the Mavericks out there is that it took me a long time to figure out what it was that I could do to make money that was going to make me happy. And I knew that there was a better way of going about this. I didn't have anyone to guide me. So that's part of the reason that I started coaching. And it's also the reason that I, part of the reason that I wrote the book, because people tend to be very hard on themselves. Um, they let that inner critic run space in their head. Mm. And um, I wanted to help people come, you know, develop a process that they could use to find happiness in their careers, whatever choice they wanted to make. Mm, I, I love that. What a great journey. Um, and I love the fact that it's, it's rooted in kind of, um, you know, kind of finding what, what you needed as, as well as you, as you went through, as you've kind of figured it out, as it were. So what's it? So, so now you've been on this, this, this big journey through life and you're here doing coaching, you've written a book. What's life like now? So life is, is, um, is, is really satisfying. Um, you know, and I will say it's not all about work. Your listeners know this, you know, you have to have happiness in your personal life. It's not, you know, it's not just your work life, but you know, um, last night I had dinner with a former client and, um, she kept telling me what a difference I made to her. And when I hear that, it makes it all worthwhile because, um, I think have, you know, helping someone find um, satisfaction in their careers and not just sticking with the status quo um, because they think they don't have a choice, people assume that, is um, it just gives me such great satisfaction, um, mm. you know, to hear that kind of feedback from clients. So, so life is really good once I figured out what I wanted to do when I grew up. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I might still be figuring that one out. Yeah. <laughs> Susan, yeah. But hey, there you go. Um, that uh, how, how wonderful. And I really, and I just, I don't know. I just get this sense or this intuition that that kind of, that deep want to kind of really help people like pull out their best selves and get past that critic is such a, such an intrinsic drive for you as it were. It is definitely an intrinsic drive because um, I had, and sometimes it crops up again, uh, I had the worst inner critic. And I was harder on myself than anyone else could possibly have been to the point that I was making myself sick. Mm. So when I was in high technology and sales, I was having panic attacks on a regular basis. And I just want your listeners to know that it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, it takes a while to figure it out. And I think there is a process involved. Um, but people don't have to stay in situations or they can at least try to adjust situations if they can't leave to make them more manageable and more palatable. Mm, mm, I love that. I love that. So, what was it that you did to start to tackle your inner critic, as it were? And we'll come on to how other people can use that to tackle theirs in a second. But how did you start to tackle your inner critic? Well, I think it was my training in positive psychology. Um, I was very fortunate to um, be part of the first class 
that was developed by uh, former Harvard professor Tal Ben-Shahar, mm. who uh, decided that he wanted to take the research that uh, is coming out of academia, and as he says, to build a bridge between the ivory tower and Main Street. And um, for me, it was learning about the science of how people thrive that made me realize that I could do, I, I did not have to be a victim to the inner critic. So I'll, I'll give you just one brief example. So I, I, uh, when I give talks, I often say to the audience that I was not born with happy genes. And part of our um, makeup in terms of how we view the world is genetic, but roughly 40% of it is under our control. Right. So one of the things that I learned when I was in this training was um, a, a very simple intervention to write on a daily basis um, three good things that happened during the day. Mm. And I said, okay, I'm going to try this. And I was skeptical. But what I noticed is after about six months, for me, I didn't need to keep journaling about this anymore. My brain neurology had actually changed. Mm. And mm. it was now I was able to notice many more positive things that were there in the past. I just didn't see them but I was able to pay attention to them because of this very simple practice. And that's how I shift, shifted my brain neurology. So it was, you know, by learning what psychologists have studied and putting it into practice made a huge difference to me. That's, that's wonderful. I just want to pick up on that practice, actually, because obviously in positive psychology and indeed in, in a lot of places, kind of the notion of gratitude is really quite topical these days, along with things like mindfulness and that kind of thing. In that specific practice, is, is it enough to just write down the three good things or do you have to, because I can imagine that, that you know, you, if you had a really bad day, you could almost just go through the motions and do something like that. Is that enough or do you really have to kind of put yourself back in that, that moment of the good thing? So you're raising a really good point. And the, and the idea is to put yourself back in the moment. And, you know, one of the things that Tal said to us when, when he was teaching us this practice is he said, the thing that you reflect on does not have to be earth shattering. It could be um, reflecting on a nice conversation that you had with a friend or even what you ate for lunch, if you, you know, if it was really delicious. But the idea is that if you keep doing this, and let's say you're having a bad day, or you, it's the end of the week and you're tired, if you go back and look at what you wrote, you'll realize that good things are happening in your life, regardless of how you are feeling at the moment. You know, our brains are really wired to remember the negative more than the positive. It's a biological fact that probably kept us safe when we we were being chased by wild you know animals um, yep. you know hundreds of thousands of years ago but um, the biology has not kept up with our current set of circumstances and so we do tend to think more around the you know we do tend to recall the negatives more than the positives so gratitude is 
um, is very important. There's a lot of research around how, you know, writing down what you're grateful for, you, you know, your friends, your family, your good health, the roof over your head, the sunshine, whatever it may be, um, is also very beneficial. So you can do it either way in this practice. You can write mm. down just three good things that you noted, or you could write down three good things that you're grateful for. Mm. And 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 that, and what I love about what you said there was that you know there is a lot of research behind this. So this isn't just one of those kind of forgive my language, you know, one of those namby pamby things that you know psychologists tell you to do. There's actual hard evidence that that kind of shows the benefit of this. Correct? Yes, and um, that's extremely important from my perspective, and and my book is based upon that research. Mm. Um, I often tell you know, people when I tell them my um, story that I probably was the queen of self-help books and supported the industry almost single-handedly at one point in time. <laughs> I was and, and, the king, so I was probably right there with you. Sorry, carry and, on. And, I, and it's, it's, I'm not denigrating people who write self-help books. They, they can be beneficial, but for me, what made the difference is to know that if somebody recommended doing X and such, that there was actually research behind it that showed that it worked. Mm. And so when I wrote my book, I didn't want it to be just another self-help book. I actually wanted it to be a workbook that includes exercises that are based in positive psychology research. And um, and that I use that as a guide in my coaching practice as well. I, I love that. I love that. Now, in in the book, you kind of you you mention kind of the notion of um, kind of mental gremlins, as it were. And you know, again, it's a, a term I'm very familiar with from coaching. But what kind of mental gremlins have you noticed that kind of stop people getting, you know? finding satisfaction in work or in career or in vocation as it were so the typical mental gremlins are i'm not good enough i'm just a fraud i'll be found out i'm not as good as dot 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 name the person and those are very typical mental gremlins um, that people have and they may not even realize uh, they may not even be aware of them, but they're most likely affecting their behavior. I'll also say that circumstances play a role. Um, some of the people that I coach have been laid off from their jobs. Um, most of the time this happens because of business reorganizations and it has little to do with the performance or nothing to do with the performance of the individual. Mm. However, the circumstance of being laid off unleashes these mental gremlins. And, you know, so I have found in my work with those people particularly um, that they, they need some extra uh, acknowledgement of the reality of what happened to them instead of the stories that they tend to tell themselves, which are usually very distorted. Right. Right. Well, and to be honest, I, you know, I, I, I was in California during the, uh, the dot-com crash and I've been there myself. So I, I, I can well, well understand that as it were. So 
if if a person is in this this kind of position where they're they're in the grip of the gremlin, as it were, and you know it might be any any number of those. What's what's the starting point? What's the how how does a person begin to kind of wrestle down that gremlin and kind of come back to a place that's more resourceful and more kind of um, I don't know has more equanimity in it. So the first step is to recognize that the gremlin is there uh, and to believe that you can deal with it and accept that the gremlin does not have to be there, that the, the gremlin in actuality is there to try and protect you. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's actually, a, you know, a, a, a device that we all have to try and protect ourselves from embarrassment, from failure, from shame. And that's not a bad thing. Right. But you have to notice also the behaviors that go along with it. So for example, if people have, you know, I, I call them the inner critic that runs space in your head. If you notice, for example, that you're procrastinating, um, that you're trying to make a decision. Let's say you're working and, and there's a project that you're trying to complete, but for some reason it's, it's not getting done. There's something going on where that inner critic is probably telling you, you know, if you submit this project, um, you know, you're not, you're going to fail. Um, so yeah. that's, that's one sign. If you find yourself trying to make some decisions in your life and just feeling um, that you are helpless, that you can't move forward. That's another sign. And I would say the third sign is being unwilling to ask for help or assistance, that <laughs> feeling like, oh, I can do it by myself. Right, right. You know? So that the first step is really recognition and acknowledgement that, okay, it's there, but I'm going to stop beating myself up and do something about it. That, that that makes such complete sense to me because once once you once you recognise it's there and you make the choice you put yourself in a more resourceful state correct correct absolutely great great so one of the things that intrigued me about the the book and you know you 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 kind of talked there about um, kind of that I can do it myself um, I don't need any help or and you know how many of us have been there and kind of <laughs> fallen over and failed as it were. And you, you kind of talk about failure in the book, and I love that. I think you, you, you called the chapter "Treat Failure Like a Scientist." Mm -hmm. or look at failure like a scientist. Tell us a little bit more about that, and I'm, and I'm kind of curious, how have you applied that yourself? What's a, a challenge you've applied that to? So um, let me first tell you where that idea of, of you know treating failure like a scientist comes from. So because I'm in the Boston area. Uh, it, it, Boston is the hub of the biosciences. Um, oh, there are hundreds yeah. of biotech companies and pharmaceutical companies. So uh, because of that, many of the people who, with whom I work are scientists. Right, right. That makes what sense. I, what I have learned from them, and I have tried to apply in my own life to your question, is that failure is a normal part of anything that we do and sooner or later we're going to fail a small failure a setback or a big gigantic one which i actually talk about 
happened, happened to me, a failure that I had, and I talk about it in my book. But what I've learned from scientists is that without setbacks, they would not know how to move forward. And these are people that are, you know, um, their work is to discover, you know, medicinal, uh, you know, medicines to cure disease, uh, medical devices to help people live longer and more productively. And they have told me over and over again that failure is part of what they expect. It's part of the process. Mm. So to give you an example in my own life, I was asked to uh, speak to a group of CEOs a few weeks ago, and I was told what the topic was. And when I got in the room, I realized that what the, this group wanted to talk about was not what I was told they wanted to talk about. <laughs> Uh-oh. And I was really not prepared with, for what they wanted to discuss, and I was winging it. And right. um, it felt horrible. But when I left there, I said, okay, let's chalk this up. Let's take a breath. Let's move on because it was not the end of the world. Mm. And in the past, I don't know if I would have been able to do that relatively easily because it was an embarrassing situation. Mm. But I realized that, um, you know, there was some miscommunication that took place. Uh, that was really no one's fault. And I learned for myself what questions I needed to ask to prevent a similar situation from happening again. And that was my takeaway. So what could I have done differently to make sure that I didn't set myself up to fail? <laughs> because <laughs> maybe I didn't ask enough questions or the right questions. Right. Right, and that and that's a, a, a very pragmatic standpoint you you came to on that one. Um, and what I'm what I'm kind of curious there, and what the other word that comes up, of course, is perspective. And it sounds like through all the the different practices that you've used and applied with yourself and with clients, you you develop perspective, right? That, that ultimately speaking, that situation, no one died. It's um, you know, ultimately speaking, it's it's not a huge issue ultimately speaking um so i'm just kind of curious how how do you help people develop that sense of perspective as it were so it's a great question and there's another um exercise that is based in positive psychology that i use with clients when they are lacking perspective and um, it actually was developed at um, the university of michigan business school and it's called the reflected best self exercise, but basically it's, it's quite straightforward. Hmm. What, um, what I have clients do is I ask them to email 15 or 20 people who know them well, and right. to ask those people to write back to them and reflect on a time that they saw them at their best. What were they doing and what strengths did they notice? that that individual was using mm. and that's the whole design between that uh, behind that exercise is to provide the person with perspective because when we're not feeling good about ourselves for whatever the reason may be um, it's really hard to see things objectively 
And what I've noticed in, uh, with clients that have done this is it really lifts them up because people will write back to them about things that they've taken for granted um, or they're just not seeing because they're not in the right frame of mind to see them. And um, I've seen people make tremendous strides after doing that um, because A, they notice that people have taken the time to really write something meaningful. They don't, you know, they're not just slapdashing something off. Mm. And, um, and they realize that unless the, per, you know, the people who are writing back are being authentic, they want to help the person who has asked them to do this. So it's, it's very, very powerful. And it's a great way to gain perspective. Um, people who are lacking it. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing exercise. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious with that kind of thing. Cause it sounds like an incredible exercise. Is it kind of like a, a, a one shot deal? Or have you found with, with clients you've um, had do that exercise that it's something they come back to it kind of provides kind of strength and bolstering over time, as it were. It's so interesting you ask that question because the answer is yes, they do come back to it, which actually in a way surprised me. So um, someone that I'm working with now um, made a, uh, he made a job change and joined a company that culturally um, it's not the best fit for him. It's, mm. uh, it's a company that is kind of uh, hierarchical and a little bit rigid, and he's not that way. So I had him do this exercise at a time where he was feeling particularly badly about his situation, and he was blaming himself um, for why he took this position. And he told me that um, when he was traveling to um, their corporate headquarters and was anticipating uh, not feeling all that uh, inspired about being there, <laughs> that he pulled out the comments that people had sent him. And he said that really reinvigorated him and really gave him the, you know, the, the, the strength that he needed to keep going. And he told me that he refers back to them, uh, you know, fairly frequently. Wow. So that's actually a great resource then for him. Yes. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So kind of, kind of bringing this back I, I, in, a, in a second, I'll kind of want to bring this back to you as it were, but I'm just kind of curious with the book, what was it? I mean, other than obviously giving people strategies to kind of ditch their inner critic as it were, what was it that you're really trying to, um, enable people I, I guess the question i'm ask, asking is what what what's the kind of things you want people to take away from your book and from your message as it were so there are a few things i want number one i wanted to people to know what the science actually says about the um the causes of happiness and um and the traps that people often fall into assuming that certain things that are external will make them happy, which is not what the science says. Mm. So that's the first thing I wanted people to understand, that your um, definition of happiness or well-being may not be what the research actually shows. So that's number one. Um, number two is I wanted people to understand 
where they are in their careers. Are they in a situation where they really need to think about leaving? Or is that in a critic um, telling them stories that may actually not be um, accurate, uh, portraying the situation accurately? So I wanted them to have some tools to assess um, where they currently are. And then third, I wanted them to have resources to move forward. Mm. So, um, you know, it's not about just saying, okay, I'm going to set this goal. Uh, you know, I'm going to find a new job or, you know, I'm going to make a career change or I'm going to try to stay and be happier where I am. It's then figuring out how to do it, which is really about the process and the resources and support that you need in order to do that. Mm. So uh, that's why the book is, um, is divided um, into sections, the first being recognized, the second being redefined, and the third being re-engaged. I really, there's, there's something you just said there that I really want to pick up on, which I think is really interesting, which is you were talking about the notion of happiness. And it, it's one of those words that, you know, uh, has cropped up a lot in psychology in the last 10 years but also obviously it's the kind of thing we all say we want we all we all aspire to and you you said about what we uh think is going to make us happy is not necessarily what the science says is going to make us happy or something as words like can you tell us a little bit more about that please sure so many people assume that when they get the next promotion when they make more money when they get a certain title when they buy their sports car or whatever it might be, that those are the things that are gonna make them happy. And I, before I go further, I, I just wanna make the distinction for a moment between happiness and well-being. Mm -hmm. I don't want anybody listening to think that it's possible to be happy all the time. That is really an unrealistic expectation. And I actually have a chapter in my book on how to use and work with negative emotions. So happiness is an emotion. It's fleeting, just like anything else, sadness, anger, frustration. Um, it's really about well-being. And what the science shows is that well-being is a combination of three things. It's a combination of when your interests, so what intrinsically motivates you, mm -hmm. your strengths, what you're good at, and your values are in alignment. If you're doing work that aligns those three factors, then you will tend to be, you will tend to be more engaged at work and feel a greater sense of satisfaction. And it really doesn't matter the level at which you are. If you can be, you know, at an entry level or a very senior level. But when you tell yourself it's about the promotion, the money, the car, the house, that's when you're falling into a trap mm, that makes such, such sense to me and you know strengths is one of those things we we talk about and we we use a lot as it were in uh, both individual and um kind of the work we do with business as well so given given those strengths what would be uh, short of doing something like clifton strengths finder or some of the tools that are out there to profile strengths what are some of the ways you have seen uh that people can use to really uncover their strengths so um, there's actually another strengths analysis that has been developed in the uk um, called the r2 the realize two 
So okay. if people want a formal strengths analysis, obviously Gallup or um, values in action um, are two very good ones. Um, the reason that I like the R2 is that it helps people identify strengths that they feel they're underutilizing. Oh, so, uh, it's very interesting because none, to my knowledge, none of the other formal strengths assessments um, have that. And it also identifies weaknesses and what they call learned behaviors, which is something that appears to be a strength, but is actually draining to the individual who, um, who uses them. So um, the other, there's, so back to your question, the exercise that I talked about before where people write, you know, and ask colleagues, former colleagues, current colleagues, when they have seen them at their best, um, in part of that exercise, they're also asking, what strengths have you seen me using? Okay. Okay. And that, that, and that's a, a brilliant way, isn't it? Of, yes. Because it's, they're, they're kind of, and especially if you get 15 or 20 people who name the same kind of things, they then become something that your inner critic is going to have a real hard time kind of, um, kind of refusing to believe or, Exactly. And I had a client who was stuck in a job that she really hated and knew that she needed to leave, but um, she could not give herself permission. Um, and she did this exercise. And what you said a moment ago, Krish, is exactly what happened. When she got the results back from her network, there was a consistency that she could not ignore. And really what she wanted to do is she wanted to become an executive coach, but she hadn't even verbalized it. But when she saw the feedback, she said, this is what I need to do. And she actually, um, and she uh, applied to a, um, a very well-respected uh, executive coaching program in the United States. And she wrote about this experience of using this reflected belt best self exercise and she was accepted and she is now an executive coach and she is thriving but without people without seeing the similarities in the responses i i don't know that she would have gotten there that's amazing that's absolutely amazing so let, 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 let's kind of bring this back to you, Susan, because it's, it's clear to me that you're you're an absolute expert in your field. I'm just kind of curious, uh, coming back to your journey, as it, as it were, what what kind of been what's kind of been the biggest obstacle that you've faced since kind of launching your own business, and how have you overcome that? I think the biggest obstacle that I faced was my fear. Um, I had a fear for a long time that I just wasn't good enough and did not know enough. Mm. And I have a tendency to compare myself with other people. And, um, you know, just to give you an example, so the program that I graduated from in positive psychology, and then I also have another certification specifically in positive psychology coaching, I said, well, this program is not as good as dot, 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 because the dot, dot, dot is a university program from an Ivy League school. Right. And I was actually in a mastermind group back a few months ago with the other attendees who are extremely accomplished entrepreneurs. And they looked at me and they, cause I mentioned this and they said to me, 
that's ridiculous. It where you got the it's what you know. It's not where you got the degree from. And I and I probably would not have listened to them, but I knew you know from their own you know from the information they shared. So I you know I realized that I have a lot to offer, and that when I feel scared, um, I you know I try to set goals and reach for those goals, which was one of the reasons that I wrote the book. It wasn't part of my motivation was to challenge myself and see if I could do it. Um, and science also shows that people who set challenging goals um, develop a greater sense of confidence because when you see yourself actually achieving those goals, you realize what you're po what's possible. It's like athletes like elite athletes. Mm. So, so what was it like when you got, got that first copy of your book in your hand? Um, it, it, I couldn't, I can't describe it. I mean, it was a year, because it's science-based, it was a year's process of writing it. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, it was funny because part of me was like, okay, I did that. I'll just move on to the next thing. <laughs> And in the mastermind group, someone said to me, you know, somebody wrote a book about how to market your book for seven years. And they said, don't just take this so lightly. This is a major accomplishment. And, you know, again, I'm like, okay, maybe I need to listen to this. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how we... We're so you were talking earlier about the negativity bias of the brain, but isn't it amazing how we're so quick to really uh, focus on our failures or the things we do wrong? And what, but as soon as we do something quite amazing, and let, and uh, you know, I've I've written a book as well. I know what it takes, and it's it's a tough gig mm -hmm. when you're when it's research based or that kind of thing. But we just roll straight over that. It's like oh, there's no big deal. Move on. Isn't it amazing how we do that? It it truly is. And, you know, I think there, you know, also based in science is the idea of savoring. And mm. so when we, when we do accomplish something, it's really important to savor that experience and, you know, go back to it and take the time to, you know, um, uh, reward yourself in some way or recognize yourself in some way. Otherwise, it just seems like every accomplishment is an everyday occurrence. So, you know, actually stopping and recognizing is uh, very, very important. So how did you, uh, how did you uh, savor the moment of, of, the, of the book? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> We're all a work in progress, right? <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> you knew that question was coming, didn't you? Sue? I did not. <laughs> Uh, it's all good. So, but that's the thing, and you know, part of the re part of the reason I do this this Mavericks podcast, and I like having conversations with real people, is because we know this stuff. You know, I mean, like you, I've been I've been in the field of kind of helping people um, unleash their superpowers for for years. But I'm a human being. I still, you know, I'm still a work in progress, obviously. And I think it's that work in progress ness, as it were, that allows, gives us permission to actually as you say, treat the sea failure from as a regular part of it and be real, as it were. Um, I think I think that's a, just a really big thing. 
Um, so I'm just kind of curious in terms of like, so now you're a, you're a coach, you run your own business, you're kind of consulting with companies uh, and speaking and all that kind of stuff. What do you do? How do you um, keep yourself focused and motivated on a daily basis? What kind of daily routines or practices do you use? The thing that I have learned, and I've learned it the hard way, is to take breaks. I think it's so important um, for people that, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're employed, um, you know, our, our brains can really only focus well for about 90 minutes at a time. Mm. So for me, um, on a weekend, you know, sometimes I work on the weekends if, you know, I'm doing writing or something, but there will be days where I will know that I feel that I need a break. And I will say, okay, today I'm not reading email. I'm not doing any work because I need that time to recharge my batteries. And sometimes it's just a matter of a few minutes. You know, sometimes we can't, if we're in the middle of the workday, mm -hmm. well, we can't just leave. But you can get up from your desk. You can take a walk around the building, you know, and so it's, it's not forcing yourself to stay in the chair and it's saying, okay, I'm going to take a few minutes or an hour or whatever the time might be to recharge your batteries. And that is something that has worked really well for me. So from that point of view, I mean, you, you've clearly got lots of tips, lots of wisdom, that kind of stuff. One of the things we ha we find is there there are people who are would-be mavericks, as it were. And, and, you know, we define mavericks as true-hearted, authentic people who are unleashing their superpowers and want to kind of make their mark on the world, as it were. So what wisdom would you give a would-be maverick or a maverick who's just starting out on their, their journey, as it were, who, you know, they may may not have run into their inner critic yet, and but undoubtedly at some point it will come up. I would suggest to anyone in that situation to really think back on an experience that they've had that has engaged them completely, where they've lost track of time um, because they've been so involved in what they were doing. And to use that experience as a clue uh, or clues to what they might want to do in the future. We've all had those experiences. I don't care if you're 18 or 80 listening to this podcast. Mm. And if you're just starting out, you know, think about what, what kind of project were you doing at school or what, what conversation were you having with a friend or what were you doing where you just felt so totally engaged. It's what scientists call being in flow. Mm. And Really use that as information to help you look at things in the future where you can feel that level of engagement again. Love that. Love that. And think, thinking about that, that's for, for kind of mavericks who are starting out, but we all have those kind of people who've gone ahead of us as well, right? Who have been some of your, your influences? Who are some of your heroes or heroines that well, one that comes to mind and is Dory Clark. Um, you and I were talking about her before uh, the podcast. And um, she is my heroine because um, everything that she has done in her career, she has tested out herself. 
So it's, it's not like she's saying again, you know, do this or do that because I know better than you do. And she's also honest to talk about the failures um, that she's had as well. So um, she's, she's um, one person that comes to mind. And um, the two others that I, two, uh, two brothers actually, who've written uh, a series of books, um, they're Chip and Dan Heath. Mm. And I don't know whether you've ever had them on your show, but they are just fantastic. Um, they know what they're talking about. And, um, you know, uh, one of their recent books is called The Power of Moments. Yes. And it totally blew my mind. It's a wonderful book, isn't it? What was it that, that you really took from it? What I took from it is how small moments making a difference in the life of a person in, in a small way can make a huge impact. And they give many examples, but I'll just share one with you. So I run a group, I run a networking group here in the Boston area. And I decided one morning that I was going to bake some muffins and bring them in during the, you know, for the, this group. Yeah. Well, the level of camaraderie and the dialogue was so different <laughs> because I brought in these muffins. <laughs> and that's the power of a moment. It was like, oh, that was, you know, that was so nice. She thought of us. <laughs> that's awesome. That's and awesome. I, took it, I took that idea from, uh, the, from Chip and Dan Heath's book. What I will say from that, Susan, is if we ever do meet in real life, I'm going to I'm going to expect muffins now, just to yeah. let you know. <laughs> we'll come to Boston then. Okay, okay. I've got to come to Boston for muffins. How can I possibly turn that down? I love it. <laughs> okay, last couple of questions, Susan, just to kind of bring us bring us to a, a run. One of the things we talk about at Mavericks is, um, and it's our big why as an organisation, is helping to create a world that works for all. And so one of the things I always ask every, every um, person I interview on this is, if there were no limitations, what one thing would you change about the world and what would be your very first step towards it? At the risk of offending some listeners, I would change the current state of our politics in the United States at this moment. Mm. It's probably not the best example to use. And so I'm trying in a small way um, to do what I can uh, to make sure that voters get registered for um, the elections that are coming up in November yep. of this year. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, I, I think we also have to learn to talk to each other. I think that's what's the most disturbing about our current situation. And I, I know you, you know, throughout Europe, you're seeing, you know, similar kinds of things. Um, so as much as I can facilitate dialogue and authentic dialogue, I think that's where everything needs to start. Love that. And I love the fact that you're doing something practical and pragmatic about it as well. It's not just a, an idea to you. You're actually doing something about it. And the final question I have, Susan, this is, this is I warn you now, it's usually one that kind of stumps people. But what is the one question that you haven't been asked that you would have liked to have been asked? And what is your answer to that question? I have to think about this for a minute. Um, I will say that I think you asked 
Excellent questions. And don't worry if there isn't one. It's just always a bit of fun at the end. That's all. That's all. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> what um what what would people not what what would people want to know that they would not know from reading my resume? Oh, great question. Great question. So what's the answer? The answer is um, I'm a road cyclist uh, and I love to be on my bicycle more than anything else and have been waiting patiently for the weather to change here in the Northeast so that I can do that. Um, but that is a passion of mine. Oh, I love that. So what, what is going to be your first big ride? Well, I'm hoping it's going to be tomorrow because the weather forecast is looking promising. And um, so I'm just going to ride around my neighborhood, which is quite rural and beautiful, and go see some horses up on a, on a farm uh, about five miles from here. So that is my goal. That is an awesome goal. I love that. And what an awesome question as well. Uh, Susan, this has been an absolute pleasure. There's so, so many, um, so many um, pieces of gold in this, in this interview and so many, so many nuggets of gold and so many practical uh, things. And I think, you know, the, the other thing I love that you've brought out is, you know, a lot of people have heard of positive psychology, but you've brought some, some actual things people can use takeaway and, and things that are going to make a big impact. So thank you so much for being on, our, on the show with me today. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure being your guest, Krish. Thank you. And Mavericks, thank you for listening in today. And I'll look forward to speaking to you on the next episode. Bye for now. Hey, listen up. Don't go yet. Did you get something meaningful after this episode? Well, the most meaningful thing that you can do right now is to go and leave a review on iTunes because those reviews are what keep us here. And please make sure to share and to subscribe to this podcast. Finally, are you unleashing your superpowers? Well, if so, show us on Instagram with the hashtag Mavericks Unlimited and we'll see you over there. And with that, thanks so much for listening to the Mavericks Unlimited podcast at mavericksunlimited.com. Bye for now.